me a great deal of pleasure to introduce Subra today. Uh, Subra uh, did his PhD in Australian National University in Canberra, uh, and uh, subsequent to that has had various positions and now full professor at the University of Melbourne. A uh, range of interests uh, in the market of models in processing, stochastic estimation of control, resource allocation of wireless, which is uh, one of the topics here, sensor networks and system processing and communications. Um, so thanks very much. Thank you, Rick. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. I, um, I've been to Ireland on many occasions, primarily because my wife is from Ireland. So, um, but this is the first time I've been here. Um, and this is the first time I've been to Ireland in summer. It is uh, not as good as it could be, but it's still pretty good compared to being here in Christmas. Um, so, uh, I have, a, as Luke explained, I have a number of different areas uh, that I work in, and obviously my research interest involved as time went along. Uh, currently, I'm working in two main areas. One is wireless networks and resource allocation, mostly from a non-linear optimization point of view. And the second area is network control systems. Uh, so today I decided to talk about a particular problem that we have looked at recently in the wireless communications area. And it's a very recent work. So we have a uh, just recently accepted uh, MILCOM conference publication, but there is no journal version as yet. Um, and uh, we are affiliated with the Center for Ultra Broadband Information Networks, although theoretically this center is finished, but uh, it finished its, its, ran its life of nine years and finished in 2008, but we still have the center and hopefully it will evolve into something else. So we are part of that center. Um, so I will give you a um, brief introduction, assuming no particular background to people here. I'll talk very briefly about cognitive radio, which is a fairly uh, sort of emerging area of research, and uh, talk about the different cognitive radio paradigms, uh, what, what are the different types of models people think about when they talk about cognitive radio. One of them is the spectrum sharing uh, paradigm, and, uh, which is a very simple paradigm where unlicensed users uh, use the spectrum allocated to licensed users, uh, subject to the constraint that they don't cause too much interference to the licensed users. Okay? So it's a very simple paradigm, whereas there are other paradigms that we'll talk about later which are more complex. Um, now, in, in uh, these sort of problems, the main concern uh, for resource allocation is the channels between uh, licensed users, transmitter receiver, and unlicensed users, transmitter receivers, and the cross channels. They're all fading channels. So they are randomly time varying, and therefore, if you want to do resource allocation for optimizing any kind of performance, um, then you have to, it can do a lot better by having the knowledge of the channel. And in information theory, they have different kinds of channel knowledge uh, that people use these different terminologies. One of them is full channel side information or channel state information, that's full CSI. And if you have full channel information, then that's the best possi possible uh, scenario. But generally, it's very difficult to have full channel information at the transmitter, what, what you need in order to achieve these performance uh, measures. And uh, so therefore, people look at other types of channel information, one of them being 
partial channel information. And essentially that means that you may have uh, either channel statistics information or some sort of noisy channel estimate or the so-called quantized channel side information, which basically means that you don't exactly know the real value of the channel, but you know um, that the channel uh, space is partitioned into various quantized uh, subspaces, and the receiver knows the exact channel, okay, and uh, it decides on the basis of uh, which partition the channel falls into an index for that partition. It sends back the index to the transmitter via a limited feedback channel, and the transmitter then has that index and decides which power level to use based on that index. Okay? So, um, so in this particular problem, we are looking at how to design this power codebook at the transmitter for an unlicensed user or so-called secondary user such that it achieves some sort of optimal performance. Um, then we'll talk about how to design that based on generalized Lloyd's algorithm type uh, methods. Also give you approximate method because this can be, this type of method relies on generating a large number of training samples for the channel realizations in order to, in order to compute the algorithm. If you're familiar with vector quantization, then that's a very similar type of algorithm that we'll be using. Um, but we came up with an approximate algorithm that's much, much faster, almost 600 times faster than this one, which works for larger number of bits of feedback. So in, in practice, it seems to work very well for four, more than four bits of feedback, which is 16, more than 16 regions, 16 quantization regions. And um, show you some numerical results and talk about some future research directions. So the cognitive radio is basically, it's not, a, not an absolutely new uh, uh, technology, although the, as such there is no wireless radio standard for cognitive radio, no fixed standard. There is a wireless rural area network, IEEE 802.22, which has been proposed, but that's not the final uh, protocol for, for this type of network. So the idea is that according to the FCC in America, they found out a lot of the license spectrum is actually unused or underutilized. So the, what they call as white space. So there's a lot of white space that is not being used. So for example, TV stations, and this is a very crude example, but this is one of the primary examples of cognitive radio. TV stations don't always transmit, right? At night times, many TV stations shut down. So during that time, that, uh, that part of the spectrum is not being used, and that could be used by other users who perhaps are not paying for that service, but could be using that spectrum during that time. And uh, so if you generalize this concept, then the idea is that the spectrum is being allocated to a particular licensed user who has paid for that service. However, it could be used by unlicensed users who are not generally paying for that spectrum, but you know, they might have to pay something to use that, utilize that service through their service providers. Um, so the, second, the licensed users are called primary users and unlicensed users are called secondary users. And then uh, the only thing that the secondary users need to keep, be mindful of is that they have to make sure that they don't cause too much interference to the primary users because after all, primary users are the ones paying for the service. Right? So that interference should be kept to a minimum. Now, how do you mod model that constraint on the interference? 
and you know what type of uh, model to use for the cognitive radio as to when sh they should transmit and when they should not transmit and all this sort of stuff, define different paradigms of cognitive radio. So um, the three main paradigms of cognitive radio that people have proposed so far, and there are others as well, which are various combinations of these things, are uh, the spectrum sharing, which is often called the underlaid model. This is basically a secondary user comes on and starts transmitting regardless of whether the primary user is transmitting or not. And the idea is that um, you can transmit as long as you don't cause too much interference. Okay? So that's called spectrum sharing. You're just sharing the spectrum with the constraint that you're not uh, causing too much interference to the primary user. Second one is spectrum sensing, which is a bit more complex. It requires a lot of signal processing at the secondary user transmitter because first it tries to detect if a primary user is transmitting or not. And if the, the detection says that the primary user is not transmitting, then the secondary user transmits during that time. Um, you can also have combinations of the first two, where during the, if, the, if the secondary user detects that the primary user is not transmitting, it transmits. Even if it detects the primary user transmitting, it could still transmit with a lower power, perhaps, so, so as to not cause interference. And then the third model is the cooperative model, where the primary and secondary actually cooperate. And here, by cooperation, the secondary might uh, use some of its resources to transmit primary's data. So for example, you can think of a cooperative relay type of network when the secondary acts as a relay for the primary. So if the primary's link between its transmitter and receiver are not great, it can use the services of the secondary as a relay to transmit some of its data. And in exchange, the secondary user could use some of a primary spectrum uh, for some portion of the time. Okay? So these are the three models, although you'll find in literature many other types of various combinations of these sort of things are being proposed. So, um, so far I have seen a lot of work in spectrum sharing and spectrum sensing, but not a lot of work in cooperative models. Now, how to model the interference constraint at the primary? There are many different proposals. And basically depends on what kind of quality of service you are guaranteeing to the primary. So if you are concerned about primary's uh, data rate, as is capacity, then you want to control the interference such that either the peak interference or so the so-called interference temperature, this was the first proposed constraint by FCC in America. They said uh, the peak interference at the primary receiver caused by the secondary transmitter must be uh, less than a certain threshold. Okay? So if you draw the network um, or draw the model, you have a primary user transmitter, primary user receiver, a secondary user transmitter, and a secondary user receiver. And these are the channels that you have. Um, so the interference caused by the secondary transmitter at the primary receiver should be less than a threshold. Now, if these channels, okay, I will be using these terms, G0, G1, and H1, and H, sorry, H0 and H1, something like that. Now, if G0 is a fading channel, it's a random process, okay, so it can take, you can't predict what values it's going to take. So if the, this value is very large, 
then and if you want to keep the received power, the interference at the primary receiver very small, that means the transmission power at the secondary has to be very small if G0 is very large, okay? which can be due to a particular realization of the fading process. So that's a very strict constraint to satisfy, and that because its power at certain times would be so low that it won't be able to get a high data rate. So then people propose the more flexible average interference constraint, where you say that I, the, the average or the expected value of the received power here is going to be less than a, than a uh, particular value. And that's the average interference constraint. Various other types of constraints have been proposed as well, as, as such primary outage probability constraint due to the interference from the secondary, or primary's capacity loss constraint due to the interference from the secondary. So these are sort of more um, advanced type of constraints that are being proposed. So we will look at the, the average interference constraint and the spectrum sharing scenario. Um, now, if you look at this particular network model, okay, even for a single primary and single secondary user, if you consider interference from secondary on the primary and primary on the secondary, if they're transmitting simultaneously, then this is a so-called interference channel model. Okay? And that's a very difficult problem to solve, especially if you're interested in uh, maximizing the sum capacity of primary user as well as secondary user. Then it's a non-convex problem, and it's difficult to, to solve. Okay? There are various solutions with various approximations, but in general, the problem is unsolved to find the actual capacity region of this network. So that's a very active area of research in information theory. But in cognitive radio, often the objective is to maximize the secondary data rate because the primary data rate is being taken care of with service provider. So you want to maximize secondary data rate subject to its own um, average transmit power constraint and average interference constraint at the primary receiver. Okay? So that's the type of problem we would be looking at. And in information theory, these type of uh, problems are called capacity optimization with optimal power allocation at the transmitter, uh, subject to some sort of constraint. So they, they are generally convex um, optimization problems, but nonlinear constraint optimization problems. So you can generally use Lagrangian type of techniques to solve them. Um, so what you would find that in, in information theory, the t notion of capacity for when it comes to wireless channels, there are multiple notions because these channels are random processes. Okay? So Shannon capacity is defined for a channel that is time invariant. So how do you extend that to notions for capacity for wireless fading channels when the channel is time varying? The, then um, people use this notion called the block fading channel where the time is slotted, you have multiple blocks, and over each block the channel is time invariant, and from block to block it changes in a random fashion. Okay? That's called the block fading channel. And so we'll be using that model here, and these blocks are assumed to be long enough so that it could include thousands of code words, so as to you can approximate the rate using Shannon's capacity within a given block. Okay? So then, within each block, the capacity is a random process again because the channel itself is a random process. Okay? So for example, you could write the capacity as log of one plus the power, if it's a function of the channel, times h. Okay? I have, what I've done is I've ignored the half factor and have assumed that the noise power is unity. Okay? So here, because h is a random variable, 
So even if you use constant power, it is still a random process. Okay? So people use the notion of ergodic capacity where they take the average of this. However, this is only useful when you are transmitting over a, long, a large number of blocks so that you get the average effect. Okay? And that's called ergodic capacity. That's okay for data transmission when you have no, not much of a delay constraint. But if you have delay constraints such as in voice and video transmission, then this is not a good measure. Okay? So you have a delay constraint and you are more concerned about trying to maintain a minimum rate for transmission for voice and video. So in that case, you look at the probability that this thing will fall below a certain basic rate R0. Okay? And that's called the outage probability. And if you, for a given outage probability, let's say that I can maintain this rate R0 90% of the time, and 10% of the time I won't be able to maintain. So your maximum allowable outage probability is 0.1. And given that, what is the maximum minimum rate that you can support? And that's called the outage capacity, and so on. And you can also look at somewhere in between if you have got integrated service of voice, video, and data. Right? So there's all these different notions of capacity. There's also something called delay-limited capacity. Um, now, if you want to maximize capacities like this, okay, or minimize outage probability like this, okay, then, and you want to do that, do so by finding a, a power allocation as a function of the channel gain um, to, to optimize some criteria like that. So, for example, if you want to minimize this probability subject to an average power constraint, okay, then it, depending on you know, what R0 is, you can find the solution as most of the time, if you can maintain the rate R0, you'll be transmitting such, with a power such that this is exactly equal to R0. Okay? Because there's no point in trying to get a better rate. Because all you want is minimum rate R0. So transmit with the power. So if you so solve this equation, log of this equal to R0, you can clearly see that power, assuming that log is natural logarithm, it is going to be given by this thing. Right? So it's a channel inversion. Obviously, if the channel is very small, then this power is going to be very large. And that may not be satisfied by this average power constraint. So the solution sort of looks like a power uh, at there is a threshold, let's say h epsilon. And from that point onwards, you have a channel inversion algorithm. But below h epsilon, you don't transmit. Okay? So h epsilon is determined by the average power constraint. And um, similarly, if you change this to expected capacity, you have a different solution, so on. But the main thing is that in order to do this, you need to know the channel at the transmitter. Okay? How can you do that? Well, most of the, uh, if you consider an uplink of a wireless system, the receiver usually has the channel information, and it can transmit the information back to the transmitter. Okay? Obviously, to, to assume that you have exact H at the transmitter, is a bit of a stretch, okay? Although in information theory, people make these assumptions all the time. So then people started looking at, okay, so if I don't have H exactly at the transmitter, what else can I do? So then the concept of this partial channel information has been considered in the form of noisy channel estimates. So either you have an estimate of H, which is a noisy version of this H, or you could have some sort of 
quantized information about H at the transmitter, which is given, given by the receiver to the transmitter through a feedback channel. Okay. Um, so these are the different types of partial. Also, you can have simply the statistical information of H at the, at the transmitter. So you don't know H, what H is exactly, but you know its distribution and the parameters of the distribution. It turns out that if you can have H, then you can do the best possible uh, uh, performance optimization. So in cognitive radio, optimal power allocation for secondary transmitter to maximize its ergodic capacity, so its expected capacity, subject to its own transmit power constraint and average interference constraint, when you have knowledge, knowledge of G0 and G1 exactly at the transmitter, has been done. It's easy to solve. But having the knowledge of G1 is okay, okay, because that's his own receiver. So you can get G1 back or some sort of estimate back. But how do you get G0 back at the secondary transmitter? There is no cooperation between primary receiver and secondary transmitter. So. Uh, you can, the first problem you can propose is, well, I will have some sort of partial information about G0. And some people have looked at that. But what we propose is actually we don't even need G1 exactly. We quantize the channel space G0, G1, and send an index back to the, to the transmitter. Now, the assumption here is that we don't consider the interference from the primary in this setup, primarily because that would uh, mess up the the optimization problem, because you make it a non-convex problem. However, you can, you can do this if you assume that the primary's power allocation policy is fixed. So you're not trying to optimize primary's power allocation policy. Then you will get another fading channel in here, and you can still do the, solve the problem using a similar method. But in general, in spectrum sharing, people would be looking at maximizing secondary's capacity, ignoring the interference from the primary, uh, but subject to its transmit power constraint and average interference constraint. So if you look at the um, problem formulation, what we say is that there is some sort of central entity here, which people call by different names. So this is, this is like a, it could, you could think of this as a cognitive radio service provider, which has links to the base stations of the primary and the secondary. And because it's a receiver, so it can, it can get the information for the receivers of primary and secondary. So it knows G0 and G1. And so this has full knowledge of G0, G1, but it sends back quantized information about this channel space to the primary. Okay? So how can you do the... So in, but this, this quantization, uh, it's, a, it's a problem of joint optimization. If you're familiar with vector quantization, you will know that in vector quantization, uh, in, in for compression purposes, uh, suppose you are, doing a, uh, you are doing a face recognition problem and you have a, uh, a large feature vector that you want to transmit, but you have too many of these and you don't want to transmit all of them separately, so you compress them by a, a code word uh, that represents a number of vectors within a certain region. Right? So it's a, then the problem is of joint optimization of the partition regions as well as those code vectors that represent, or the representative vectors, so people call it reconstruction points and all sorts of things. So it's a joint optimization of that. And uh, the type of algorithm that does this optimization is called Lloyd's algorithm, okay, or generalized Lloyd's algorithm. So here also we are proposing something similar, except here the criterion for optimizing is different. 
it's not, in vector quantization, you, you minimize the distance between the vector and the representation point. But here, the optimization criteria is different, is actually given by the particular problem that we have in hand. So this guy, this cognitive radio service provider, does that optimization offline. It's completely based on the statistics of these channels. So basically, if you, can, if you know the statistics of these channels, um, you can generate a large number of training samples of the pairs of G0, G1, design your partitioning, and you design a power code book that can be sent uh, back to the transmitter. This is all done offline. So the transmitter has a copy of that code book. And on real time, for every G0, G1, this guy decides which partition it falls in, sends that index back, okay, based on how many bits of feedback you have. And this guy then looks up the, comp the corresponding uh, row of the, the power code book and uses that power for transmission. Okay? Now, in a more general problem formulation, you can assume there are multiple primary users, okay? and each of them using a separate band, and the secondary can access all of those bands. And that's what we call as the wide band spectrum sharing. If it's just one primary user, one band, then it's narrow band spectrum sharing. So this is the picture of the thing. So you have multiple bands, each being exclusively uh, licensed to a primary user 1, primary user 2, primary user M, so we have M bands. And the secondary user's channel to its own receiver in the ith band is G1i, and the corresponding interfering channel is G0i to the ith primary user. So the problem formulation requires some assumptions where we assume that for each band, G0 and G1 are independent. Now, it doesn't have to be assumed. You can still do it if they're correlated, but it simplifies the problem. And uh, you know their distributions, and we assume their means of these uh, distributions at unity just to keep the number of parameters down. And additive noise are usually Gaussian with zero mean, unity variance, mutually independent, etc. And if you collect all the bands, interfering channels and all the bands, as its secondary zone channels, then you call them by these boldface vectors, G0, G1. And the channel side information that you get at the transmitter is some function of G0, G1. Okay? So the, in the first instance, if you look at the problem, uh, the problem is given by maximizing secondary's ergodic capacity, so the expected value of log 1 plus its ith channel, times the power on the ith channel as a function of the channel side information and summed over all possible channels divided by m because it's a, the capacity is essentially bits or nats per sub-channel subject to an average interference constraint for each primary, the ith primary user, okay, so there's a q average i and subject to an average transmit power constraint of the secondary transmitter. So if you use, if you know exactly G0, G1 at the transmitter, at the secondary transmitter, so if you um, uh, assume that eta, G0, G1, is a, just an identity mapping, it's exactly G0, G1, then the optimal solution is given by this uh, formula, which is a pretty straightforward exercise in convex optimization because it's a convex problem. Everything is linear, the, uh, max, the objective function is um, concave, and... Um, and as you can see, we have ignored the interference from the primary on the secondary. So the general solution will look like this. This is the typical water filling type of solution, 
where lambda is the Lagrange multiplier corresponding to the average power constraint, and mu i is the uh, Lagrange multiplier to the average interference constraint for the ith user. Okay? So these are very typical type of solutions. And then you can simplify them to these two particular cases when um, either of the lambda or the mu uh, j is a zero. That means that if one of these constraints is uh, not satisfied with equality, okay? so if they're inactive, then the corresponding Lagrange multiplier is zero for the, from the Karuskun-Tucker conditions. So you can sim simplify to either of these two scenarios provided these conditions hold. Okay? So it's easy to prove. It's a pretty simple um, convex optimization problem. So that's already been done. There's nothing new. Uh, but the problem formulation with quantized CSI, so here we are saying that um, this channel space for M bands of M different G0 and M different G1 is being quantized into subspaces. So we will try to to understand this problem a bit better through the narrowband example when there is only one G0 and one G1, but you can easily extend it to the wideband case. And so as I explained before, the codebook is designed, basically then you have a power codebook, which is something like this. So that if you have B bits of feedback, L equal to two to the power B quantized regions, and for each channel, you have L, an L vector of powers for each of the regions, and you have M such bands. Okay? So we'll simply look at the case where M equal to 1 first, but you can solve it for any M. Um, so this codebook is designed at the, the, this cognitive radio service provider, or band manager as some people call it, and this is then transmitted to the secondary transmitter before uh, trans actual real-time transmission begins. So obviously, it is, it, this is de designed on the basis of the statistics of this channel. And if the statistics do change, then you will have to redesign the codebook. Okay? But the assumption is that the channels might change because of the random process, but the statistics don't change that frequently. Okay? But obviously, if they, the secondary and the primary are moving around very fast, it could change, and you have to do this design more often. Okay. So now when the, for it in real time, based on every G0, G1, this guy finds out which row you belong to, because, uh, sorry, which column you belong to, based on which region you fall in, and then it sends back the corresponding index of the column out of 1 to, uh, 1 to L, essentially, so B bits of feedback, and based on that, the primary chooses that particular row and, uh, and transmits that, or sorry, particular column, and that transmits that. Okay, um, so let's now uh, look at the narrowband case, which is simpler to understand. So here, because there's only one channel, we call the power as PJ in the jth region. Okay, so G0, G1 have been um, quantized into uh, L regions. So if you look at G1 and G0, okay, uh, sorry, the way I will draw it is G0 here and G1 is, this is secondary zone channel, this is the interfering channel. And this has been quantized in some regions. I don't know to, offhand, to, to start with what the regions look like, but I'll find out. And so for the jth region, you use the power PJ. 
So given you belong to the region Rj, okay, you have the capacity of, of this. However, you have to weight it by the probability of belonging to region Rj and then average over all regions. Similarly, the interference constraint and the average power constraint have to be written in the same way. So now we have the quantized formulation. So clearly now it's a problem of designing these regions Rj as well as finding the optimal powers Pj. And then you have solved the problem. And the way to do that, uh, a typical algorithm would be this Lloyd's type algorithm. And as I said, in vector quantization, you minimize the distortion between the original vector and its representative vector. And you look at the average distortion. Here, we look at a modified distortion measure, which is essentially a Lagrangian, okay, based on the capacity. So if you want to minimize this, we look at the negative of the objective function plus lambda plus mu g0 times the power. So that's the Lagrangian of the original optimization problem, uh, except we're looking at minimizing it, so you put negative in front. And then, in order to make this distortion measure non-negative, you subtract out the minimum of that quantity over all possible powers, p. So that makes the distortion measure non-negative, and you can apply a lot of established theory to, to do that. But as such, the second part, the subtraction part, doesn't really affect the optimization problem, because pj only appears in the first part. Okay? So you can simply think of the top part, the first line of that equation, as the quantity that uh, you want to maximize. So what you do, you first generate a large number of training samples, G0, G1, according to the distribution. And then for, and you have an initial random, randomized code, power code book, P, P1 to PL. Okay? So you, generate, you can generate that in many different ways. There are many methods. We simply generate it using a random distribution, okay? uh, like uniform distribution, whatever. You choose with some uh, arbitrary initial power code book, as long as they're all positive, that's fine. And then you, for every G0, G1 out of for every training sample, you figure out which PI maximizes that quantity. Okay? Oh, sorry, in this case, minimize. You could have got a negative sign. You minimize that quantity, and you assign. So whichever PI gives you less than all other J not equal to I, you allocate G0, G1 to that particular uh, region, the ith region. Okay? Once you have done that, then you have got the regions, but you have to find the optimal powers for this region because you started with some arbitrary powers. Once you find the optimal powers, in order to do that, you have to essentially solve this, this optimization problem for a particular region J. Okay? And therefore, it, you can easily do that. If you write the Lagrangian solve that problem, it will give you this equation to solve. Okay, where those expectations are conditional expectations. So obviously, you may not be able to, because you may not know exactly uh, uh, the, what these regions are, you know, how they are defined. In this case, we do know how they are defined, but these conditional uh, expectations are essentially integrals, integrals within a certain region, right? But you may not be able to obtain that integral in closed form. You can do it numerically, but in this case, as I will show you in a moment, these regions are defined by certain boundaries, and they essentially look like these kind of boundaries, like that. So if you call this region 1, R2, R3, etc., and RL, and you use the powers P1, P2, 
etc. up to PL. Okay? You can find these boundary, the equations of these boundaries because on this boundary, that uh, quantity, this LPI, if, if this is the ith boundary, it's the i plus 1 boundary, then this LPI should be equal to LPI plus 1 okay, on the boundary. So from that, you can find an equation for these graphs. However, if you want to find these integrals, these conditional expectations using integral, then essentially it's, it's difficult because um, the, these powers appear in the equation of the boundary. So it's essentially a nonlinear equation that you have to solve. However, in Lloyd's method, the way to solve them is through, by computing these expectations empirically. So because you now you have a large number of training samples, you've assigned G0, G1 to individual regions. So for each region, by knowing which G0, G1 belong to that, you can obtain these, these conditional expectations. And you solve for PI star from this. And if the, that PI star is positive, then that's the corresponding power. If it is negative uh, or zero, then power is zero. And we'll see when the power will be zero in a moment. Um, so once you find the new powers for the individual regions, then you go back to your previous step and you reallocate the, the channels to those powers. And then you repeat this. So you keep repeating these two steps until you converge. And the reason you will converge is very intuitive because uh, you are looking at maximizing something and each step you are improving. And because power is finite, your capacity will also be bounded. The average capacity will be bounded. So you are increasing at every step to something that is bounded, so you will convert. But you can prove more general results, which are given in a paper by Sabine and Robert Gray in uh, 1986, which actually shows global convergence and empirical consistency, which means that regardless of what random initial condition you start from, or because you generate empirical random variables from its distributions, so based on that you can still convert, it requires some conditions on the distributions of G0 and G1, basically, which are fairly mild conditions. Okay, so the boundary between the region J minus 1 and uh, RJ minus 1 and RJ are given by this particular equation. Okay. And you can show that these functions, if you write it as G1 equal to function of G0, they look like that. They're convex increasing functions of G0. Okay, so as you can see, the boundary contains the powers Pj and Pj plus 1. So if you wanted to in, uh, obtain that conditional expectation as an integral from you know, R2 to R3, you have the powers P2, P3, and P3, P4. So three powers come into that equation. So it's clearly a, a simultaneous nonlinear equations in multiple variables that you have to solve. Um, and you can do that under certain uh, cases, but not in general. So this is what the regions look like, as I showed before. Now, you can prove certain properties of these, of these regions and the powers. You can show that all the boundaries lie above this straight line, lambda plus mu g0. And that has a special meaning, because if you go back to the solution to the full CSI problem, you can see that if you think, simply think of this i being equal to 1, just one band, then for power to be non-zero, g1 must be greater than lambda plus mu g0. Okay? So that's the water filling policy, that g, if channel is greater than a certain value, then only you transmit, otherwise you don't. Okay? So you can see that even for full CSI, g1 must be greater than lambda plus mu g0. Now, in the quantized case, what happens is that 
he can show that all boundaries lie above this straight line, g1 greater than lambda plus mu g0. However, so for all the, all the regions up to the L minus 1 region, the power should be positive. But for the last region, some of it lies above this line, some of it lies below this line. So it's not clear whether PL will be positive or zero. In, in fact, it turns out that it can be positive or zero. And so the, and this is the structure when, so this is when both lambda and mu are positive, meaning that both average power constraint and average interference constraints are active. And if the, if lambda is greater than mu equal to zero, that means the average interference constraint is not active, which basically means that the, the transmit power constraint is so small that it's, it's active, whereas the average interference constraint is not active. In that case, the, this, this is a simple ergodic capacity optimization problem, which is a, a well-known, in fact, it's been solved, but it's not really a cognitive problem anymore because the average interference constraint is automatically satisfied. But in, it is not relevant to the narrowband case, but in the wideband case, it may happen that for certain channel, you may not, sat, you may not that the interference constraint may not be active, okay, for a particular channel or channels. So that information is also useful in that case. So these are the properties that we can prove on the uh, GLA-based, generalized Lloyd's algorithm-based power allocation. So first of all, you can prove that the powers are strictly decreasing in that order, okay, which kind of makes sense, because as you go down this way, you can see that G0 is increasing and G1 is decreasing. So secondary's own channel is decreasing and its interfering channel is increasing. So clearly it should be using less power, less and less power as it goes along but you can actually prove it. As I said, all the boundaries between any two adjacent partitions satisfy G1 greater than lambda plus mu G0. And all the L minus one first powers are positive, PL can be greater or equal to zero. And you can now show the following result, that when lambda plus mu, the sum of the two Lagrange multipliers get equal to one, then PL must be equal to zero. And so if you think about the case where lambda is zero, meaning that you have a lot of average power. Average power is not a, not a problem, but your average interference constraint is a binding constraint. Then if mu is greater than one, that means your average interference constraint is automatically defined by some small number. In that case, PL will be the last, last power will be equal to zero. And for a sufficiently large L, also you can prove regardless of what lambda mu are, for a sufficiently large L, PL must be equal to zero. And the reason for that is that as L goes to infinity, the last boundary, between the region L minus one and the region L approaches this line, G1 equal to lambda plus mu G0. So the last region falls below that line, therefore the power should be zero. And you can also show that PL minus one, although it's always positive, but it approaches zero as L goes to infinity. Okay? And this particular property, last number four property, is very, very useful because what you can do with this you can use this for a large L, you can use it to derive an approximate power allocation policy. So instead of solving using GLA, you can say, well, my PL is equal to zero for a sufficiently large L. PL minus one, the limit is, goes to zero. So using that limiting value and PL equal to zero, essentially you solve this equation starting for the region L minus two. You solve for L minus two and given that PL minus one approaches zero and PL equal to zero. So you solve the limiting value of these integrals, okay? And then you solve for PL minus two, when given PL minus two and PL minus one goes to zero, you solve for PL minus three and you go backwards. 
And these solutions, because you're only solving an equation in one variable, it's very, very quick. Okay? And that's a very, very fast algorithm compared to using GLA. However, as I said, this algorithm, which we call as AQPA, Approximate Quantized Power Allocation Algorithm, it seems that it does good, pretty good, after L becomes uh, greater or equal to 16, so more than four bits of feedback. And five bits of feedback, it, it gives you very good results. Um, and call it approximate quantized power allocation. But for a small number, if you have only one bit of feedback, for example, then you know, that's not going to do very well, as you will see. OK, so, yep? Do you have an uh, idea of what the rate of convergence of PL minus 1 to 0, and how does it go? Um, no, no. That's, that is the, the, I'll come to that in, in the future directions. And uh, it is one of the things that we have tried to prove for many months, and it doesn't seem that straightforward. Um, I think you can prove some sort of upper bound on the rate, but it's, it could be very loose. Um, okay, so for the wideband case, you can solve the problem similarly because essentially the problem separates into M sub problems, except that they, are, they have the common Lagrange multiplier lambda. So that's what binds the whole thing together. But otherwise, the problem is very, very similar. And another thing that I will not talk about in detail we don't have time, but so far we assume that the feedback channel is noise-free. So whatever index is transmitted, the receiver receives the same index, or the, in this case, the transmitter receives the same index. But if that feedback channel is noisy, then the, whatever the receiver sends, the transmitter may, may not receive the same index. So if you think about uh, each bit uh, being transmitted, so think about, let's say, it's a, a eight region, okay, so three bits of feedback. So a 100 might be received as 111, okay? So you have two bits in error. So if you assume that each bit transmission is an independent use of a binary symmetric channel, then you can model the error probabilities in receiving each of the code words. And using that, you can similarly design a, another modified generalized Lloyd's algorithm to design the, the power allocation policy. And so the algorithm is not that different, except that the objective function and the constraints are different, because what you transmit is not what you may receive. Okay? So you have all possible combinations between them. And so if you, if you model the binary symmetric channel crossover probability as QF, based on various values of QF, you can, we'll show some results. Now, in this case, we don't actually optimize the coding procedure. You could, you could design a coding procedure, which is known as index assignment, in, uh, in this sort of literature. So which region you assign to which code, okay, that can be designed better. And it's shown in vector quantization over noisy channels that this type of schemes can, an optimal index assignment scheme will get, give you better results. But optimal index assignment scheme, as you can imagine, it's an NP-hard problem. So clearly it's going to give you a, um, you know, a computationally very uh, expensive algorithm, but there are some other suboptimal algorithms that can do better. But in this case, we don't look at that issue. We simply assume that the coding procedure is fixed. So given a particular index assignment, how do you obtain the optimal partitions and the, and the power allocation? So here are some results for um, a narrowband case. So here, um, the full CSI is given by this purple uh, quantity, or pink, probably the top one there, the, the one that gives you the best. For, um, 
two possible cases, Q average being minus 5 dB and Q average, that's the average interference constraint, being 0 dB or minus 5 dB. So as you can see, with one bit, if you look at the minus 5 dB case, one bit, two bits, and three bits, the green line is three bits of feedback. It's pretty close to the full CSI already. Okay, that's the narrowband case. And of course, if, if you relax Q average, you get better capacity, which is obvious. Why? Because the interference constraint is being relaxed. So this is the result for a narrowband situation, for one band only, using the Lloyd's algorithm. Okay? So, and if you draw the four bits of feedback, then essentially it will be almost indistinguishable from the purple or the pink curve. Now, this curve, as you can see, it has got three sort of regions. The first region, you can see the quantized feedback don't have much distinction from the full CSI. Because here the power is, average power is so small that you don't get much capacity anyway. So in this case, lambda is greater than zero, but the average interference constraint is inactive. In the middle, both of them are positive, both constraints are active. And as you go over here, the flat region, this is where you can have a lot of average power, so lambda goes to zero, the average power constraint is not essentially effective, it's the mu, the average interference constraint, that limits the capacity. So even though you keep increasing average power, capacity doesn't, it's kind of saturates after a while. Now for wideband, you can also have similar results. So I just showed you a, for one particular example with different, uh, so there are four bands here, and you have different interference constraints in the four different bands. And so again, you can see with three bits, you have, you're pretty close to um, the full CSI. And now the comparison between GLA and the approximate algorithm. And as you can see, that in the beginning, with two bits, there's a large gap between the two. Three bits, the gap decreases a bit. Four bits is even less. And if you actually plot the five bits and so on, which will be difficult to see, um, the HUPA gets very close to GLA, basically. Almost indistinguishable. Um, noisy feedback, that's the last graph, I think. Um, so in this case, the QF binary symmetric channel crossover probability, if it is 0 0.01, then you can see that L equal to H, so three bits of feedback, okay, which is almost the same as the noiseless four bits of, uh, sorry, what did I say? Uh, yeah, so the noiseless four bits of feedback and noisy three bits of feedback. Uh, now this is red, right? This is red and that's green. Okay, so no, uh, QF equal to point 0.1, uh, L equal to 4, and QF equal to point zero 0.01, that's obviously less than the L equal to 4 noiseless, okay? And L equal to 8, uh, QF equal to point, sorry. I, I, I have difficulty now distinguishing the red from the orange, so. <laughs> but basically the idea is that, um, without wasting any time, idea is that as you increase the number of bits of feedback, if you, if, you if you have noisy situation, you lose the effectiveness of the increased number of bits of feedback, basically. And this is purely based on GLA type of algorithm. So, uh, so basically the summary of this talk is that we designed, uh, uh, this is for the first time that this has been done, uh, uh, that 
quantized prior location in the cognitive radio context. Using generalized Lloyd's algorithm, we also designed a, an approximate algorithm that's quite fast. Now, obviously, there are a lot of theoretical avenues of research that arise from this, and these are some of the things that we have tried uh, for quite a few months, but there doesn't seem to be a, an easy solution to these problems. One of them is, uh, some of the simple ones that can be done fairly easily is multiple primary user per band. So if you, here you assume that each band is assigned to a single primary user, but you al allocate each band to multiple primary users. So you will have multiple um, average interference constraints for each of the band. In that case, um, you, uh, you can still do it. There's no problem with uh, solving the problem. And you can also consider primaries interference on the secondary, as I mentioned before, as long as you assume that the primary's power is fixed or its power allocation policy is fixed, okay? which, is, which is not being optimized over. It's a fixed policy. Then you can do the same problem, except that it will be a bit more complex because you will have another channel to consider. Okay? So it will be a three-dimensional problem. And to, to look at optimal index assignment schemes for noisy feedback, which we haven't looked at. Um, but the, the one that's written in blue, that's the one we have spent a lot of time, this relates to your question that you asked earlier, as to how to characterize the, the capacity loss as the number of feedbacks, feedback bits actually increase. So if you look at the, the narrowband case, the very first one, right, the, here there isn't much difference. But as you go to the, the flat area, there is the gap. Right? So when the average interference constraint is effective and the average power is unlimited, Okay, then basically you simply look at the case when lambda is zero and mu is greater than zero. Okay? In that case, is it possible to quantify this gap? Okay, when L, it's not, I don't think it's possible to do it for any arbitrary L, but for an L becomes large, it might be possible. And that would relate to your question as how PL decreases you know, as L goes to, or, or PL minus one decreases L goes to infinity. Uh, so we had actually spent a lot of time on this question. Uh, some of the avenues that we've explored are this asymptotic quantization uh, theory. When it, th these are mainly available for vector quantization with squared error distortion measure, but there are some extensions to modified distortion measure. Where you, what you do is you look at this, um, this modified distortion measure and you expand this by Taylor series expansion and you truncate all the higher order terms beyond the second order term. And, and the first order term essentially becomes zero from an optimality condition, so you're only left with the second order term. And it seems that, in my simulations, it seems that when I apply that theory, so when I actually use the second order term to approximate this quantity, it actually is very close for the values of the powers that I get. However, that, that expression that I have uh, I cannot apply the general theory for asymptotic lower bounds for quantization to that particular that expression that I have because it involves, say, it's a scalar distortion measure but involves two channels, G0, G1. So it's not obvious how to extend the current theory to that. So we have tried a few things, but it seems that all the bounds we get are much, much lower than the actual capacity loss we get. So the, the lower, the, it, it could be that these bounds are only um, sort of close or tight when L is very, very large. 
and that may not have any meaning in practical communication systems. So if you say, you know, my bounds, uh, this asymptotic bound is very good when L, L is equal to 20 or something, then that obviously doesn't, oh, so not L, I mean the number of bits is equal to 20, okay, or 10 bits of feedback, that's thousands of regions. So that may not have a lot of meaning from practical point of view. But it would still be a nice theoretical exercise to actually do that, to solve that problem. But so far we haven't got any um, satisfactory answer to that. And you know you can look at many other extensions of this problem. Of course, you can consider other types of interference constraints at the primary instead of average interference constraint. That would also complicate the problem. But these are some of the things hopefully my um, graduate student would be able to look at. Um, so I'll stop there. I think. Thank you. So questions. We have time for discussion afterwards. Subaru will be here till about four o'clock as well. But there's a couple of questions now. Yeah, Brad. Sure, if you uh, cover it in your presentation here. But um, you would include additional secondary users into the problem? Would it become non-complex problem? Uh, it depends on what, uh, what criterion you're trying to optimize. So there are results on uh, when the secondary users form a multiple access channel or a broadcast channel. So if you have uh, multiple transmitters, one receiver, or one transmitter, multiple receivers. Uh, in that problem, if you want to look at, uh, in multiple access channels, so if you have multiple secondary users using a single band uh, for a primary user, then if you look at the sum rate maximization problem, so in information theory, generally the, um, if you have two users for a multiple access channel, the capacity region looks like this. And so for people usually look at maximizing the sum rate, which is pushing this boundary you know, as far as you could. Um, so that doesn't maximize the individual user's rates gen in general. But you could look at that problem. That's been already looked at. But when it comes to full CSI, it's been looked at. So it, uh, if you look at sum rate, it's, not, it's a still a convex optimization problem. And the solution will be for full CSI is whichever user has a, the largest value of G1 divided by lambda plus mu G0. Okay. So for whichever user has the largest value of this will transmit. The rest of them will remain quiet uh, for, for a given block. Uh, and similarly for the broadcast channel. But for the quantized channel case, that's something we'd like to look at as well. But so far we haven't had time to, to look at the problem. But it, uh, it will be a non-convex problem, surely, if you consider the interference channel problem, where you want to maximize both primary and secondaries, uh, or the sum rate of them, and they're both causing interference to each other, then it's a non-convex problem. OK. Well, thanks very much. I'm sure there'll be uh, plenty of other questions after we have uh, coffee or muffins or whatever else. So let's thank Subra. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.